Hello and welcome from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. This podcast you're about to hear was recorded at our Burragoon campus. So sit back, relax, and enjoy what God has to say to you. Thank you, Father, that you know us, that you love us, that you are holy, and that in knowing us to the depths, you still love us to the skies. We praise you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Friends, take a seat. And it's brilliant to see you. Uh, I'll tell you what, there's a bit more grey hair than there was earlier this week when this room was full of teenagers for masterclass. Uh, I had the privilege of being flown over here for Bible Society to speak to teenagers on a range of questions, to field Q&A with some dear friends. Uh, just on, so exciting to see young people exploring the faith, asking hard questions whether the Christian story really is worth believing, whether it stands up under scrutiny, and to get excited about following Jesus. So I want to say a huge thanks to the church for obviously opening the doors and being willing to, uh, to host that here. And that's actually a large part of what I do. Uh, if you haven't met me before, my name's Dan, and I have the privilege of spending most of my time talking with people of a range of different beliefs about why Jesus is really worth following, and helping them wrestle with the doubts and objections that are kind of way more prevalent in our secular and skeptical age. Uh, I work with a mob called Questioning Christianity. So we do about 150 talks in schools and universities and then doing stuff at churches and public events every single year, as well as, and given most people that are young these days are addicted to pixels, uh, we've created a YouTube channel and social media content to help make small videos, sort of five to 10 minutes, that pick up on all of the biggest questions. We're about 100 deep at the moment, things from, uh, does God exist? How do we know Jesus is real? Can you really trust the Bible? Why would a good God let bad things happen? What about all the Old Testament violence? All of that kind of stuff to, what about other religions? Why are there so many Christian denominations? Uh, all of these sorts of barriers to belief, we try to helpfully uh, p- tease apart. Um, you'll see on the table at the back there today, there's actually these tiny little cards. And the one good thing to come out of COVID is that we got really familiar with QR codes, right? So they have this nice little QR code on there. You can just scan that. That'll take you to all the free resources that we've got at QC to be able to help you wrestle with these questions or maybe to be able to think better to know how to answer some of the questions others might ask you. You'll also find out there a a book called Questioning Christianity, which was written by myself and my friend Rian Roo, South African origin, uh, to try and bring together in one place everything that you would be able to need to either hand something to a friend or to be able to learn how to have better God conversations with your friends. So it's written to be non-cringy, that people are perhaps a little bit apprehensive towards Christianity, towards religion and the God question, but a book that helps to spell out what is the Christian story? Why is it good news? How does it speak to life's deepest questions of who are we, why are we here, and where are we going? The second third of the book explains what it actually means to be a Christian in the modern world. And the biggest part of the book, part three, tackles the top seven objections, the barriers to belief that people often bring up in a really shorthand way. So it gives you the language and ways of being able to respond. So whether you're a newcomer and you want to figure out, yeah, what's Christianity about? That could be really helpful to you. Or whether you're like, I want to know my faith better so I can have good conversations with family and friends. could be really useful too. We've got some copies here today. But let's turn to the question at hand, because speaking of big questions in our cultural moment, it's hard to think of anything that's a bigger barrier to belief for many young people particularly than the sexual ethics of Christianity. That for many people, when it comes to this question of why does God care who I sleep with, this is the number one reason why they say, I don't want anything to do with God, don't want anything to do with Christianity. 
Whether it's seen to promote hatred towards LGBTQ folks, or to put restraints on our sexual behaviors that our culture deems repressive, all manner of people are convinced that the Bible, it's not only archaic or prudish when it comes to the topic of sex, but that the views that it espouses do real-world harm to vulnerable people. The headline is that Christianity is bad news for your sexual story. And perhaps some of you here are persuaded of that view. You're wondering whether church is even a safe place to have these conversations. And what I want you to know is that when it comes to these deeply personal topics, I'm sensitive to that concern, and so is the Bible. Speaking of Jesus, it was said in prophecy that a bruised reed he would not break, and a smoldering wick he would not snuff out. Which means when Jesus weighs into these topics of sex and sexuality, he doesn't come as an instrument of brute force to beat us into political submission. His primary voice is one of compassion, of care, of a concern, to liberate us. Because the truth is, it isn't just sexual minorities that have something to do with this question. I think of the various stories of people who come to me with deep and profound questions. The 15-year-old teenager who's questioning whether God loves them because they are experiencing same-sex desire. The 25-year-old married person who feels hoodwinked by earlier promises of sexual fulfillment in marriage. The 35-year-old single person who feels like they're missing out on something because they're not experiencing intimacy with a spouse. The 45-year-old divorcee who feels racked with guilt because of sexual exploits that tanked their marriage. And the anything-year-old who is wondering, how on earth can I escape the grip of this addiction to pornography. You see, the truth is we all have a complex history with our sexual feelings. We all have something of a sexual story. And after years of listening to people's concerns, of listening to stories of people within and outside the church, sexual minorities and sexual majorities, still I am convinced that the Christian story is good news for all of life and for everyone. And that amidst the sea of competing voices shouting for our attention in our cultural moment, that you really can trust Jesus. That he doesn't come to be some kind of prison for our sexuality and for our bodies. No, he comes to liberate them in order to tell a better story. So at the very least, if you're here this morning and you're skeptical of these sorts of claims, maybe dragged along by a parent or a friend, and you're thinking, man, does this guy know all what I'm experiencing. Maybe you have major hang-ups when it comes to the Christian story and sexual ethics. At the very least, I hope you'll walk away understanding better what Christians believe and why, animated by the love of God, it can indeed be good news. So that's the question. Why does God care about your sex life? And I want to begin by perhaps a bold proposition by suggesting that far from Christianity being the prison, Jesus actually comes to be the grand liberator. But to understand this, we need to get a sense of what we mean by this language of freedom. Because freedom is at the very heart of our culture's pursuit right now. A longing to be free, to have no constraints upon us. And in the shadow of the sexual revolution, we're tempted to believe that freedom means the absence of all constraints. So put sexual freedom in them, what does that mean? Well, no moral fixed lines, no boundaries, no borders, and no one can tell me what to do in the bedroom. But is this all it really means to be free? Back in the 50s, Isaiah Berlin, a Russian philosopher and public intellectual who trained in England and taught at Oxford, 
he gave a famous series of lectures called the Two Types of Liberty. And in here, he outlined certainly this negative view of freedom, uh, freedom from, a view of absence of all constraints, the ability to do what you want to do, but he also balanced that with a second concept of freedom. And not negative freedom, freedom from, but a view of positive freedom, a freedom for. You see, this is his view where he said the freedom to be able to lean into your created purpose or the very nature of the thing for which you are made. We could give a couple of examples. Is a fish more free? Take Nemo, right? When he's swimming in the water for which his body and lungs were ultimately designed, or is he more free when he uses his capacities to jump out of the water and flop around on dry land where he begins to suffocate? You see how freedom has something to do with the form for which you were created. Or let's take a train and its tracks. Thomas the Tank Engine. Is Thomas more free when he is gliding along the tracks for which he was ultimately created? Or when he breaks free from those tracks to go hurtling at high speed through the forest? You see, we instantly perceive that freedom has something to do with the means for which we were created, for the type of thing we were meant to experience. What does this mean then when it comes to sex? Well, when it comes to ethics in general, C.S. Lewis used this wonderful image in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, whenever we're asking what's right and wrong, whether we should do something, whether that is good for us to do, there are really three questions we have to ask ourselves. And he used the image of nautical ships. He said, whenever a boat captain goes out on the water, the first question he has to ask is, how do I keep from sinking? Right? It's a pretty good question to ask. How do I keep from shipwrecking my own life? Right? How do I keep from taking on water, crashing into something which is going to hurt me? So the question ultimately ends up being, do what makes you happy, not what harms you, right? what leads to your ultimate well-being. This is individual ethics. The second question you have to ask, though, he said, is because we're not the only boat out there on the water. There are lots of other boats, as you can see from the number of people in this room. How do I keep from bumping into other ships? Social ethics. In other words, do what makes you happy, question one, so long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. Now, this seems to be the dominant cultural thought when it comes to forming a secular morality. Do what makes you happy, so long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. But he said to stop here is to ignore the third and most fundamental question. What am I doing out here on the water in the first place? Is the point of my existence simply a joyride around the bay? Or is there some goal, a destination to which I'm ultimately meant to be navigating? Because unless I know what I'm out here for, I cannot answer whether any particular choice, any decision, any course of action helps me arrive at that destination or becomes a hindrance that's keeping me from doing what it's created to do. And ultimately, where the biggest difference between a Christian vision for sex and sexuality comes down and then our culture's story is when it comes to the question, what is sex for? What is sex for? And before we answer that question through the lens of the Christian story, which I want to spell out for you this morning, I think it's important that we actually start with our own cultural footing. Because without realizing it, many of us in this room have been so shaped by the cultural stories, by the movies, by the books that we've read, that some of the base beliefs on our culture when it comes to sex have sort of worked their own way into our psyche. Here's a few of them. 
that sex is just a physical appetite. As necessary for your survival is drinking water and eating food. It's a basic need that needs to be satisfied. I remember Patricia Wirakuna, famous sexologist here in Australia, about a five foot three Sri Lankan woman, she's a grandma, has taught her whole life, and she made this profound statement to me. She said, Dan, we have many, many recorded cases of people dying in history because of a lack of water. And many, many, many cases of people dying because of a lack of shelter or food. Or maybe many, many, many cases of people dying because of a lack of medical care. But you know what? As a sexologist, I've studied the literature. And there is not one known example of anyone dying because of a lack of sex. <laughs> and yet that's how our culture talks about it. Is that a second base belief is that it doesn't matter who you sleep with so long as you consent. We live in a swipe right, swipe left culture. It's a moment of opportunity. There's no commitment attached to that act anymore. It's simply a form of exercise or a form of fulfilling these desires. As long as consent's involved, it doesn't matter who you sleep with. Number three, that sexual feelings are who you really are and need to be lived out for that identity to be actualized. There's, there's nothing wrong at the base of our desires. That how you feel is the most clear window into the authentic self. And number four, that sex exists just to make us happy. That's its only real purpose, to make us happy. So there's no larger idea attached to it. Now, if God does not exist, I get it. There's no sacred purpose, no ultimate role that sex and marriage play. It's part of a bigger story. And so, in the great catch cry of a decade ago, YOLO, you only live once. To borrow a phrase from Ecclesiastes, eat, drink, be merry. But what I want to humbly suggest is that even if this isn't true, our cultural story hasn't delivered on what it promised. The sexual revolution promising greater fulfillment and freedom and satisfaction and joy. And yet, let's survey the fallout. The sacred boundaries that have been trampled on display in the Me Too movement over the last decade. The language that sex does matter. That young women were violated by people in positions of power. That borders and boundaries were transgressed by people who shouldn't have done it. It's a profoundly religious language. Or how porn culture is destroying, destroying younger generations entirely. Their ability to relate to one another, to have healthy relationships, to have the right kind of view of their fellow men and women. How it buoys the sex trafficking industry, this modern slavery, horrendous evil. Or even just simply how a blanket sexual permissiveness, this swipe right, swipe left culture I've talked about, how far from delivering this ultimate fulfillment on every sociological study has actually led to less sexual fulfillment. Less sex being had around the world, some entire cultures now being described as sexless societies, and has destroyed the family unit, leaving people with empty hearts and broken relationships. The truth is, I think it is high time even secular people ask some hard questions of the culture's story on sex, which is what you'll find even amongst the academics. Louise Perry, a researcher in this area, wrote a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. She doesn't believe in God, she is not a Christian, and yet nearly every one of the titles of her chapters in this book is as though she was teaching a course on sexual ethics from a Christian worldview historically. Because she realizes, no, there is a wisdom 
to a healthier sexual ethic than what our culture is pursuing that leads to fuller hearts, better relationships, and even again on every sociological study, higher satisfaction within sexual relationships itself. Indeed, I think part of this fallout is a window into why God cares so much about our sex lives. Because sex is powerful. Thanks to developments in medical technology, neuroscientists have now been able to map exactly what happens during sexual activity. Now, don't ask me how they did this research. It's probably not good for you to imagine. But it turns out that what happens during sex is the release of quite a chemical cocktail. Let me share just three of the findings. The first is a massive hit of dopamine, which is dubbed the addictive chemical. If you've ever seen people in the puppy stage of love or that honeymoon stage of a relationship, people who wear rosy-colored glasses when you're doing premarital counseling, they can't see any of the red flags in each other's behaviors or background, is precisely because dopamine is the thing that gets released that addicts you to another person. It lasts for about 18 months to two years. It's part of this initial bonding experience. But it's incredibly powerful as a shaper to bond people together. The second is a drug called norepinephrine, and this is dubbed the memory chemical. It's what heightens, particularly in the male brain, the, this capacity to take in and to remember visual images. If you've ever talked about why it's so hard to forget previous sexual experiences, or particularly people who have been addicted to pornography, while those images become burned into their memory, it's because during this experience, norepinephrine is released, and it's what leads to an unfortunate degree of sexual comparison between what you have had in the past and then what you experience in the present. It leads to lower degrees of sexual satisfaction, not higher. The third, then, is oxytocin. This is dubbed the bonding chemical. And it's a profoundly beautiful and powerful sense of union that's created. Oxytocin is what's released between a mother and her child in both of them as they are breastfeeding, that wonderful experience of feeling connected. And it's so beautifully part of God's good design. It's intended to bring the two together, to become one flesh, to foster this sense of togetherness. And so something of the power of sex, just neurochemically, is one of the reasons why we should take what God has to say seriously. Sex is powerful. So let me unfold how the Christian story, I think, offers a far better story that makes sense not only of our sexual desires, our sexual feelings, our sexual stories, but particularly it answers that primary question, what is sex for? Because according to the Christian story, in the beginning, God created us for good. That far from the Bible being prudish or archaic in its thinking when it comes to sex, the Bible is profoundly pro-sex. You see, God designs men and women in his image as being sexually complementary. There is this beautiful way in which we complement one another, and not just in perhaps some of the temperaments that tend to come out in the bell curves of our psychology, but profoundly in our ability to fulfill God's first purpose, to be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth and rule over it. So God designs us as a sexually dimorphic species to be able to fulfill that good design. And we're told that this sex, it's celebrated as a gift from God. I mean, it's not like God created Adam and Eve with powerful sexual desires and complementary plumbing and then went off to make a sandwich in heaven somewhere and came back to be shocked at what they got up to when he left them alone for a few minutes, right? This is part of God's good design. 
In fact, there is an entire book in the Old Testament, the Song of Songs, which is devoted to the meeting, courtship, dating, marriage, and sexual relationship of a young couple. And if you knew Hebrew idiom, it's the kind of book that would make you blush. It should come with an R18 plus rating for all of those youngsters who are interested. Maybe you'll run home and read that part of the Bible today. God is profoundly pro-sex. But sex in the Christian story is also imbued with a profound purpose. It's not just there to make us happy. It's not just there to be able to help us fulfill his cultural mandate, be fruitful and multiply. No, it has a much deeper purpose. It's designed to reveal God, and it's designed to reveal the gospel. You see, in revealing God, we're told in Genesis 2.24 that a husband and a wife shall come together, and a two shall become ichad, one flesh. We think, well, obviously there's a bit of a euphemism tied in there. Is that all that it means? The most important verse that a Hebrew boy would be taught to memorize in Saturday school (laughs) for the good Shabbat uh, followers is what they call the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is Echad, one. And you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, this is the verse they would often pray three times a day. It becomes something of a mantra in the Jewish mind, the oneness of God. But the scriptures also describe that although God is one, monotheistic, God is also complex. He's one in being, but three in person, Father, Son, and Spirit. That the divine Godhead is a complex unity to which this one relationship between a husband and a wife, this complex unity of two becoming one, is designed to image. That this oneness becomes a picture of God's oneness. And so when the Bible speaks of God hating divorce, it's not because God wants people to stay in broken and miserable relationships. Divorce is given as a reality in a fallen world because of the hardness of the human heart in regard to sin. And there are so many tragic stories in which it's given as this grace, lesser of the two evils, in order to rescue people from hardship. But because marriage was designed not to be torn asunder like that, designed to reflect the indivisible nature of God, this Father, Son, and Spirit, the triune Godhead, that is why God loves marriage and why he hates divorce. And so this one beautiful image of a husband and wife, one flesh, reflecting the oneness of God. That's one of the high callings of marriage, to speak of this beautiful unity. But the second unfolds as the biblical story unfolds as well. That we're told throughout the Old Testament of these wonderful metaphors of God as a husband towards God's people as his bride, something which carries forward into the New Testament with this great promise of a love story between heaven and earth that will culminate in a marriage. You see, go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and you see God coming to walk with humanity, heaven courting earth in the cool of the afternoon. God spends time with human beings, but he's not always present with them. But the final picture in the Bible in Revelation 19 and 20, 21, 22 is of this grand marriage between heaven and earth. No longer are these separate spaces, God's space and our space. Instead, they're designed to come together, this eternal marriage between Christ and his bride, And this wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. It's a beautiful image of our future. God will dwell with us forever. And so we're told in Ephesians 5 that human marriage 
is a great mystery that points towards this future marriage between Jesus and his people. That what human marriage is, it serves as a trailer, right? This small little video that you watch on YouTube or at the beginning of another movie to help whet your appetite for what is coming, the release of this feature film at some beautiful theater near you in the future. And once you go and experience this final picture, once you've seen the feature film, you, you never go back and watch the trailer. It serves a temporary purpose, but we'll get to that. And so the power of sex, this beautiful purpose with which it's imbued to fulfill God's purpose in bringing order from chaos and creation, the cultural mandate, but to reveal God and reveal the gospel. Man, if you're sitting here with a person this morning that you're married to, you have a tremendously high calling for your marriage. It's a beautiful dignity that's imbued into it. But of course, sex and marriage don't stay in the garden. Because as much as this marriage between a husband and a wife becomes this paradigm, this celebrated framework for sex, ultimately Genesis 3 speaks of the shadow of the fall, where everything of God's good design now has become damaged by evil. And what the Bible says in this area doesn't just confront sexual minorities, it confronts all of us. Because according to the Bible, God's good design for us has now become damaged by evil such that our sexual desires, which are good in God's initial creation, now are twisted in ways that they go off in directions they were never intended to. And nobody is drawn to only the right person at the right time to the right degree. All of us are sexually bent out of shape. No one is technically straight in that sense. And the Bible brings this confrontation that it isn't just these distorted desires, but that all of us have entertained them to make sex, a good thing, become something that it was never intended to be. The Bible speaks of idolatry, which if you're new, sounds like old world stuff, but it's very simple. Rather than trusting that God would be the source of our ultimate fulfillment, instead we chase something else to be the source of our ultimate fulfillment. Whether it's work, whether it's money, whether it's sexual experiences. Something else takes God's place. The good thing, sex, becomes a God thing. It gets elevated far beyond it was ever intended to, and it will ultimately leave us disappointed as such. And we're told in the language of Jesus that God doesn't just care about what we do with our bodies. As some of you might be thinking here, I am not like those other people who are sexual sinners of various kinds. I've never gone outside of a marriage and done something with my body. And Jesus says, hold up. Hold up. Just before you jump up on your high horse, God doesn't just care what you do with your bodies. He cares what you do with your imagination. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, anyone who even looks at a woman to lust after her has committed adultery in their heart. That our imagination and what we entertain, the way that we undress people with our minds or the way that we lean into explicit material has as much of an effect on our heart as what we do with our bodies. All of us have a sexual story, which in many of us leads to all kinds of feelings, maybe of shame, maybe of distance and of hiding, maybe just resolution that I'm never going to be any different than what I experience right now, and so I may as well just accept it and stay where I am. But the Bible, from this picture of profound brokenness, actually points forward with incredible hope. Hope to a time when everything will be set right by Jesus' return. 
And it challenges the idolatry actually in all of our hearts when it comes to this area of sex because it says that sex is going to be done away with. When Jesus is interviewed often around marriage, sex, and the resurrection, it happens in Matthew 19 and 22, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they've all got their questions about what the future world will be like and what does it mean for our relationships here. Jesus says in a story to the Sadducees, they're trying to catch him out. He said, Jesus, there's a woman, and she's married to a dude, and he dies. So according to the law of Moses, she then marries his brother, and he dies. This happens a few more times, all the way up to seven brothers eventually being in the ground. Now, at some point along the line, maybe someone should have asked some serious questions as to why being with this particular woman is leading to so much death. But nonetheless, their question is, Jesus, at the resurrection, who's wife will she be? And Jesus says, you're in error. So often our conceptions of what we think the future will be like are in error. Why, Jesus says? Because we know neither the power of God nor the scriptures. Because he says, at the resurrection, people will neither be married nor given in marriage, but will become like the angels. In other words, marriage is temporary. Sex is temporary. It's not going to happen in the new creation. And that's not because God's going to take a good thing away from us. It's because we simply have a deeper kind of fulfillment and intimacy and joy in the presence of God than can ever be achieved through the experience of sex here. The fullness of joy is at God's right hand. And so what this means is that if our sexual feelings don't serve a purpose in eternity... It doesn't make a whole lot of sense for us to treat them as the most significant thing about our existence here. A good thing, perhaps celebrated in the right context, but not the ultimate thing, certainly not the eternal thing, certainly not the most fundamental part of our identity. And where the Christian story really offers profound hope is in the encounters that people with sexual stories have when it comes to Jesus. You see, right throughout the gospel stories, Jesus keeps encountering people who have a litany of sins. One of the stories that for everyone stands out comes in John 7, 53 to 8, 11. It's the story of the woman caught in adultery. It is a story that your Bibles will bracket out. They'll say this story wasn't in the original manuscripts. It kind of gets thrown in there. We're not sure exactly whether that was originally in the gospel of John, but it seems to trace a very similar style back to Jesus. And so most commentators and scholars still include it as part of Holy Scripture. And in this story, a woman is dragged before Jesus, a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And again, it's religious leaders trying to trap Jesus out here. And we should call out the hypocrisy. Why drag the woman caught in adultery before Jesus rather than the man? It may well have been one of their own crew. They've put him to the side for some quiet discipline, but they've dragged her out for public shame. And they bring her before Jesus and say, this woman is caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? And the reality is the law of Moses would have all of us stoned for any number of things we've done, from being rude to our parents and failing to honor them, right through to a range of different sins. But Jesus knows as well that the Jews were not allowed to kill people. The Romans had taken away the scepter, the right of life and death from the Jewish people, which is why they had to take Jesus to Pontius Pilate to be able to adjudicate his fate. And so they want Jesus either to get in trouble with the Romans by stoning her or to go against the law of Moses by refusing to stone her. And what Jesus does here is profound. 
They ask him a question, and his response, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And he goes down to start writing again in the dirt. Now, what he writes, we have no idea, but it is instructive that the small detail that said, from the oldest to the youngest, one by one, they all went away. If you're here today in your 70s, you're pushing 80s, you know how far you fall short of the glory of God, that none of us live up to his standard of love, that all of us are condemned by the law of Moses. And so this recognition, I've got no stones to throw, all the way down to the most zealous who are pretty happy to pick up a stone initially, and they're like, yeah, you know what, he's got me too. And eventually it's just Jesus and this woman. And Jesus looks up. Does no one condemn you? No one, sir. There is one there that could condemn her. There is one who had not sinned. And yet what did Jesus do? He did not pick up a stone to stone her. Instead, he extends what every person in this room needs from God. He extends to us grace, compassion. And then the challenge then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's not a blanket permissiveness to continue doing what we did before. Why? Because God loves us too much for us to keep self-harming ourselves. Instead, his good design is to realign us through grace back to that pattern of Genesis, to liberate our bodies and sexual desires to tell a better story. And so I want you to hear clearly from me here today. Your sexual desires and your sexual story, they don't have to define you and nor do they disqualify you from the love of God. Nothing we can do can disqualify us from the love of God. He sees us to the depths, everything we've ever thought and said and done and the good that we've left undone and yet he still loves us extends compassion and grace and welcomes us in to experience his forgiveness and this transforming grace. And you know what else? In addition to empowering us with the Holy Spirit, the one who allows us to say no to temptation, to realign us to God's good design, Jesus actually challenges the idolatry of our time when it comes to sex because he said, you know what? The person who lived the fullest life that's ever been lived, the person who experienced profound joy, the person who had rich and deep relationships, the greatest life that has ever been lived. Jesus is the goat, the greatest of all time. And he showed us that you can have all of that without either getting married or having sex. Now, even within the church, there is a idolatry of sex and of marriage. It's a good thing, but it's not the ultimate thing. And there is a growing number of single people, whether people that have always been single, whether people with same-sex desires that are faithfully following Jesus, or whether people who have been widowed or divorced and abandoned. There are a whole range of people who are single. In fact, today's culture will say the majority of people will spend the majority of their life single. And I want you to hear from me that that does not equate with loneliness or a lack of intimacy when it comes to a life with God and with these people. Because Jesus lives this profound life full of rich and deep relationships and friendships. That's the future of all of us in the new creation. Such that single people are a window into the sufficiency of the love of God and of the intimacy with God's people. And there is a profound dignity with which the Bible speaks of singleness as well as alongside it 
as marriage. These two ways in which we can reveal either the shape of the gospel, the marriage of heaven and earth, or the sufficiency of the gospel, that Jesus is enough and you can be with him forever. And so all of this is a window into how Jesus comes to liberate our bodies and desires to tell a better story. So given that there is so much cultural fallout in the moment that we're in, I'm not remotely convinced that our culture has good news when it comes to sex and to explain the rich dimensions of our own sexual feelings. In fact, when it comes to making sense of who we are and how we feel, I am sure that I trust Jesus. I have found him to be nothing but good news in how he imbues sex with this sacred purpose. He extends a dignity to the role of my sexual feelings without idolizing them and how he invites me to discipline Discipline my desires in service to a better story. For everyone in this room, at some point, it comes down to the question of, can you trust Jesus? And it's through my own story and the stories of many people, sexual minorities and majorities, that I've listened to patiently, who have spent time digging into Jesus, that they tell the same story, that Jesus really is good news for all of life and for everyone. Why? Because even in this area, Jesus loves us more than we love ourselves. He's more committed to our ultimate joy than even we can possibly be. And as our creator, he knows more where that ultimate satisfaction lies than any one of us with our limited perspective can. So if you're a newcomer here and you're wondering, can I trust Jesus in this area? Man, amidst all those competing voices in our cultural moments, you really can trust Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you know us, that you love us, and that in this area you come to bring us good news. Father, I know that in this room are full of hearts with shame, with hidden stories, things that keep us from you and keep us from each other. And other people are trapped with addictions where they feel like they can't get out of the patterns of behavior People have tanked relationships and they're wondering, can they ever be rebuilt? Lord, you are a God of miracles. And you're a God who invites us to step out of the darkness and into the light. You already know what's in our heart. Help us to come clean with you and with trusted people within your church in order to be able to find the freedom for which we have been created and saved by Jesus. And so, Lord, for everyone here, as we stand to sing to respond to you. Would you help us to give our hearts to you afresh, to trust in that grace and compassion that washes our conscience and our hearts clean? And would you help us by your Holy Spirit to pursue your good design again as we wait for that grand hope, the liberation of our bodies from the presence of sin in the world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed this podcast brought to you from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. Our prayer is that what was said today inspires you and strengthens you in your faith. If you would like to talk to someone about what you've heard today, you can contact the team during office hours on the number you can find on our website at mounties.org.au. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to having your company again soon. God bless.